Amen. Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to open up the Word a bit and hopefully see some things here. We're kind of jumping in at what would be like the end of a scene, right? If you kind of think about the book of John, it's kind of this well-crafted documentary in which uh, John is helping us see Jesus. We're kind of wrapping up on one of the ends of the episodes here, and this episode has been this conversation back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. And by the Jews, they mean these Jewish religious leaders, not just Jewish people in general, but a particular group that it was their role to judge and decide and lead the Jewish people. And so he's going back and forth with the leaders, going toe-to-toe, the conversation's escalating, and it kind of hits a breaking point here in this text. Now, now think with me, maybe you've been in a conversation that was getting out of hand and you kind of felt trapped in it before. Uh, You're kind of going, oh no, this is going somewhere. I don't want it to go. And you kind of start making an exit plan. How do we get out of this conversation? It's lingering. It's lasting too long. What do we do? There's actually a rule for this on the internet about how conversations tend to get out of hand as they go on. A sociologist named Dr. Godwin came up with Godwin's Law, which said the longer an online discussion, the higher the the probability someone is going to get called a Nazi. Just, you ratchet it up and eventually here we are, you know, we're, we're slinging names around and that's kind of what happens in Nick's text. My son, who's, you know, 16 months old, he has a similar tactic when the conversation goes too long. What ends up happening with him though is, you know, we're praying, he's doing this pretty often now, we'll, we'll, we'll hold hands and pray for uh, lunch or dinner or whatever meal around and he thinks I prayed too long. I don't pray that long. It's like, Jesus, thank you for my son and this food. Amen. But if I go like three seconds longer than that, in the middle of the prayer, it's like, Jesus, thank you. And then he goes, amen. You know, like, <laughs> land this plane. We have work to do. You know, there's going too long. But this kind of, the conversation's going too long. It's getting out of hand. The tension is increasing. The, the, the names are getting hurled around. This is part of what we see happening here is they've been going toe-to-toe for a while, and the Jews are getting increasingly personal in their attack, and Jesus is getting increasingly purposeful in his raising the bar on tension and forcing them to have to deal with reality. And so I want us to look at this conversation, look at this back and forth, and together kind of see three things. First, I want just kind of to see an observation. Then we're going to get a warning pretty so- soberly from this text. And then last, we're going to get an argument that will uh, help us uh, take this out of here and force us to deal with who Jesus is. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in on the observation. All right, Jesus, I pray that you would increase the tension in our lives and in this room, that we would have to deal with you as you are, not as we just want you to be. I pray for folks in this room who don't know you, either because they know they don't know you or because they think they know you and they don't. I pray that you would um, correct us, correct our erroneous beliefs, and help us see you clearly. And Jesus, above all this, I pray that you'd be made much of, and as we walk out of here, uh, we would see you as one who is worthy of our time and our attention. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this first observation I want to get out here is that Jesus is comfortable with tension. You might have a friend like this who like when the temperature goes up, their temperature does not go up. They stay cool under pressure. You might have an employee who's like that and they're like your most valuable person because when other people are flustering each other, they're kind of still there being cool under tension. We see here Jesus is getting cool under tension. I want you to see with me the various ways that he reacts with and deals with tension. Because I want to see, if we want to be like Jesus, part of that has to do with us becoming like Jesus in tension, not just in good, easy times, but in hard, tensuous times. Look at me in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
They're now throwing around racially, ethnically charged attacks. We should not listen to you because you are one of those people. Aren't you a Samaritan? Aren't you those half-breed, less than, don't know the... Aren't, so they're, they're unable to deal with his arguments, and so now they're descending into personal attack. But also you have a demon. You're demon-possessed. You're a crazy person. You're a lunatic. And look at how Jesus responds here, because when you respond to an ethnically, racially loaded sentence, how you respond communicates a lot. Verse 49, Jesus answered him, I do not have a demon. You know, notice he doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. Because right? if he did that, he would give credence to the inference. He would give validity to the, the concern, to the accusation. If he responded, I'm not a Samaritan, he's saying, you know, that is a good thing to be worried about. I just want you to be sure I'm not that. He doesn't even respond to the ethnically, racially charged accusation. He just says, you know, I'm going to let that one go because you're showing yourselves to be idiots. He doesn't say that. That's <laughs> argument by silence, you know. That he has the, the spine, the ability to not respond to false accusation. And it's not even like to, to the Jews, this would be slanderous, but to everybody else, this wouldn't be slanderous. But to this group of people, those people are out. But he does respond. He says, hey, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you're dishonoring me. He's just kind of going toe to toe. He doesn't get all hot and bothered and raised and concerned and has to. He's like, hey, I'm not even going there with you. You're trying to take us into this kind of thing. I'm not going there with you. He allows them to reveal their own ethnic hostility, their own kind of tenuous deal, and he moves on. Otherwise, else what we see, they say, now we know you have a demon. And in verse 53, are you greater than Abraham who died? Jesus 54 says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not here trying to make you guys glorify me. I'm trying to help you see the Father, and the Father is helping you see me. That's what these miracles have been all about. Verse 55, but you have not known him. He's talking to the religious establishment. Tensions are increasing, and Jesus is just throwing fuel on the fire. You don't know God. I know him, and if I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. You say you know God. You don't know God. You're all liars, and you're not just saying false things, because sometimes you can say false things and just be wrong. They're not just wrong. They are liars. Lying is when you know you're wrong, and you're saying it anyway. You know you don't know God, but you keep saying you know God. Liars. Comfortable with tension. At the end here, what we see, he says, before Abraham was, I am. We'll get more of that later. But he knew the effect that would have. Verse 59, they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus is not interested in artificially, you know, lowering the bar on the emotional situation. He's, he's going to keep going. No, um, this is what psychologists or therapists will call, he's differentiated. His emotional process is not bound up in their emotional process. He's able to give, like, raise the temperature on them getting all whacked out of hand while himself remaining cool, calm, and collected. He's not avoiding the tension. He's leaning into it. A lot of times we think about tension as a negative thing. It's the most, we, we're, we're pain avoidant, tension avoidant, leaning out of things. We think that in order to be loving, we have to make people feel comfortable. In order to be kind, like kindness equals, you know, warm emotional blankets all the time. 
But Jesus here is showing us who is love. He is love in the flesh. He's the fullest revelation of the Father. He's showing us that oftentimes to introduce tension to to the point of severe discomfort is actually extremely loving. I've experienced this a ton in my life. That the moments when my wife is deciding, do I or do I not increase the tension? Whenever she decides to say something that's true or lean into the tension or expose incongruity, it creates tension. And I have to deal with this, will I lean into it or will I lean out of it? Whenever I lean into it, I grow. Simultaneously with other guys on staff, when people lean into tension or create tension where it previously wasn't, they're tempted to just go, should we just kind of create this false sense of peace where truth doesn't matter? Or do we create a real peace that's on the far side of tension? Whether you're talking about emotional health, physical health, spiritual health, any type of health in general, that oftentimes, almost always, health is on the far side of tension. If we're pain avoidant, tension avoidant people, we will not grow. If anything, we will decay. And so the pursuit of tension until Jesus comes back and we're all made new is a healthy pursuit. That's part of like the idea of spiritual disciplines is I'm pursuing tension. Sometimes suffering comes upon you. Sometimes your sin just comes out. But these moments of tension and other people creating tension for us are gifts. Some of the most kind of tensuous marriage situations we've seen, the actual real healing comes when the husband or the wife who is the preeminent offended party stops deciding to be a peacemaker in like the peace, peace when there is no peace sense, fake peacemaker and starts introducing tension and causing people to have to deal with their sin or unrepentance. That if we're chronic, unhealthy people, pleasers, peacemakers, we'll actually save people from having to deal with reality. And Jesus here is not afraid of making the Jews deal with reality that I am who I say I am, and you who think you know God don't know God. He doesn't get murdered in this text, but he does later on. So he's, you know, he puts his money where his mouth is, or, you know, there's, they try to call his bluff and it never really happens. And so the question I want us to ask is, how comfortable are you with tension? How comfortable are we with tension? Because tension-avoidant people are stagnant people, but we lean into it, God uses it, and we grow. Similarly in this text, kind of, tension, I'm about to increase some tension here. Uh, There's a warning in this text, a warning that I want to look at. Here's the warning. The warning is that Jesus knows of a death that is greater than death. A death greater than death. One of the things we've seen so far in John is that there's life and there's eternal life, or there's life and there's abundant life. But what he's getting at here in this text is that there's death and there's eternal death. There's death and abundant death. There's just more to just not dying type of life, there's this greater life, life with God, connection with him. Also, there's more than just death. There's actually this severe, more serious death. And he's trying to explain this to these Jews, and they're just not getting it through their heads. Read with me in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, Jesus knows he's going to be crucified later. He also knows that everyone dies. So what's he talking about here? Clearly people see death. Clearly you're going to see death. And the Jews kind of see that tension. They go like, now we know you have a demon. Now we know you're crazy. Abraham, the father of the Jews, who is certainly faithful. He was the man of faith. Genesis 15, you, you know it, Jesus. We know it, Jesus. That he believed God and God credited him with righteousness. That guy, Abraham died. Are you better than Abraham? Jesus is getting at this. Look, look, look. 
you don't know God, I say I know him. The Jews say, he says, Abraham looked forward to this day that's happening right now. And they go, like, you're not even 50 years old. What's going on here? But Jesus is highlighting that there's this death that's greater than death. And here's how I want to think about this. I've, um, I've done a number of funerals the last two months. And there's different levels of severe sadness. Probably one of the most sad ones I did. There was this woman, 49, servant to society, married, son who's 14, on the autism spectrum. And there was like, like there's, you know, there's death when you're 175 years old and you pass away in your sleep and you're kind of like, everyone hopes that happens. And then there's like this premature, untimely, my son's still in his awkward stage and I left him in that. And now I'm single parent all of a sudden, like there's a different level of sadness that hits. I mean, it's all sad. It's all like really, there's a different level. And trying to get to like, why is that? It's because physical death is separating. It's, it's a, there's, a, there's a theft that happens. That when you experience physical death, there's now, we can no longer interact. We're separate. We're separated. We were together, now we're apart. We have memories, but there's no making of new memories. We have memories, but there's no enjoying of the memories. There's distance. There's departure. And so part of what you grieve in death is the, the, the separation that now exists that can't be undone. Especially when it's untimely death. There's real grieving over possible future memories that could have been created that are now no longer there. So you're grieving possibility. You're grieving opportunity. And it's just grief is normal and it's healthy. And if you find yourself in a very, very sad situation and unable to grieve, like that's a problem. That doesn't mean you have a lot of faith. It means you probably weren't lovingly connected to the person who passed away. Grief is horrendous. And Jesus looking at this death metaphor, this first death, this bodily death, and the separation it creates and the grief it creates and the pain it creates. And he's saying, there's another type of death, the second death, not a physical death, but a spiritual death. And it similarly creates a separation. And it similarly creates a gap. And it similarly robs you of possible future memory making. And it similarly creates agony. And it similarly creates distance. And a spiritual death is separation, not from your loved ones, but from the loved one, God himself, God most high. And he's telling these Jewish leaders, if you keep my word, which keep his word does not mean be a good, nice person, helping, you know, doing good Boy Scouty stuff. Keeping his word has to do with trusting me, knowing me, following me, believing in me, walking with me. If you keep my word, you won't taste that death, the second death, the separation from God. See, we as a society have so outsourced all of our talk of death. We send our sick and dying to professionals. We send our severely aging to professionals. We send our butchering to professionals. We, don't, we separate ourselves from all forms of death of every kind. That we, part of what this COVID-19 thing has revealed to us is how we are lying to ourselves about the reality of the first death. And we can't even begin to start talking about eternal life, eternal death, until we start to be sober about the reality of the first death. 
Carl Truman is a guy who I really like, mostly because he's a bit of a downer. But anyway, he, he said this. He, so he wrote this blog like a year ago, right at the beginning of COVID-19. And I thought it was insensitive then. It's still insensitive now, but it's less insensitive. So I just want to read this. He, he says, I've often wondered about the significance of saving lives. Delaying deaths, while culturally tasteless, is technically more accurate. We are born and we die. Death is inevitable, which is why each of us finds it so terrifying. It is a task of the church to mug people with reality before reality itself comes calling. Mug people with that reality. This is at funerals we read Ecclesiastes 7. It's better to enter into the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for such is the fate of all and the wise lay it to heart. Everyone in this room, unless Jesus comes back real soon, will have a funeral. Have we dealt with that reality? I saw a statistic the other day that said, like, you know, Moderna vaccine, 99% effective in preventing death. All vaccines, 0% effective at preventing death. I'm not saying, delaying death is really good. You know, wear your seatbelts, be cautious, don't be reckless. Part of being pro-life has to do with preserving and delaying death whenever possible and reasonable. But it's Western arrogance, technological arrogance. If we start talking about saving lives, we're delaying deaths. Have you dealt with that reality? Because until you recognize, like it's coming. For most people, it comes sooner than expected. Jesus is trying to warn them, hey, there's a death coming. And you don't know God and you think you know God. The only thing that will help you in that second death is knowing God. And the Jewish religious leaders don't know God. That's the warning. Have we heeded it? There's There's something that shatters in you when someone who's your age dies for the first time. Right? Growing up when, you know, when great-grandma passes, it's like, well, this is the, the cycle. It's still sad, but you kind of expect it. Like I think when my, my first, my buddy Ethan died when we were 18 and a half, and it disoriented me and our whole friend group, and the man loved Jesus. But from a perspective, perspective, it gave us all a gift that he was healthy, you know, he didn't do all the bad things that whatever, just cancer comes. You don't have a warning most of the time. This is the warning. <laughs> Next one's the argument. You know, if I, uh, here's the argument. Jesus must either be liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. You know, there are certain people in world history, certain people that exist right now that everyone has a strong opinion about. They're what you call polarizing figures, you know, like if I said, um, who has an opinion about Donald Trump? I could basically go to 7 billion people in the world and they'd have an opinion, right? And most people's opinions would be wrong because that's called 7 billion people, right? They're all, they're all wrong. But you're, nobody's really neutral. I mean, some people might be neutral on Donald Trump, but probably not. Most people are kind of lean and heavy for, lean and heavy against. That's kind of how it goes. It's similar with Jesus. What do you think about Jesus. We talk about, does someone believe or not believe in Jesus? I want to say everyone believes in Jesus. The question is, how do we believe in Jesus? 
either he's like a historical figure, blown out of proportion, uh, he's a crazy person. Like that. And the one thing that these kind of Jews get right is this reality that you can't really have just a neutral view of Jesus. They start saying, you have demons. You're a liar. You're crazy. And that's not really an option. Right? One, of the, one of the other options is that it's a legend, meaning like it's made up. You know, just a myth. He was a historical per- person who got all blown out of proportion. And a lot of you who are here, either you like believe in Jesus or you probably believe that Jesus is like a good moral teacher who got blown out of proportion. That's what I think most people in modern society think. Good moral teacher, blown out of proportion. Um, and I just kind of want to make an argument that's not really a viable position to hold. And so the next most common objection is that it's just a legend people made up. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that's not the case. Well, a couple of reasons why I think it is good to trust what the Bible says about Jesus, that it wasn't just something that, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church made up in 1076 to oppress the whatever. That's like, I don't think that's what happened. And here's a couple of quick reasons why, and then I'm going to invite you to something that we have coming up. The first reason why I think it's good to trust the Bible is the self-deprecating nature of history. There's an African proverb that said, like, if you want to understand what happened, don't ask the lions. The whole idea being uh, the winners of history tend to tell a self-favoring view of history. That if you want to, you know, to, the victors tend to paint themselves in positive light. Well, it's absolutely not the true with the scriptures. If you read the scriptures and you read about the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, they look like fools, idiots, and unfaithful. They don't look good at all. There's nothing good about them. If anything, the whole point of the Old Testament record is these people saying like, we got nothing, it's all up to God. Likewise, you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read about Paul, these influential people in the New Testament, and they all look stupid and sinful, period, without exception. It's not positive. They're regularly telling themselves like telling about themselves in decidedly negative light, that if they're honestly telling history, they're making themselves look bad. Nowhere else in world history do we have a book where people wrote it for the purpose of making themselves look bad, except for here. Second reason why I think the Bible is really good and trustworthy is the way that it tells the history is totally incongruent with the history that might be made up. For example, when Jesus rises from the dead, he first appears to women. If you want to know about what Plato and Aristotle thought about women, it was that they were basically lower than dirt. They were defined by their absence. They were men who were unfinished. Their testimony was inadmissible in court. And Jesus appears to women, and they bear witness to the resurrection before anybody else. If you're trying to, not only that, but he ends up hanging out with fishermen and shepherds. The low, the outcast, from society's perspective, the people who didn't matter. That if you're going to make up something, Jesus is going to appear to Caesar, and Caesar's going to say, yeah. If you're trying to like make up a story that's going to be verifiable. And so this was basically legally unverifiable based on how the first century document set up. And that's still how Jesus, on purpose, probably because he's come to attention, decides to be risen and makes it known. The third reason why I think it's good to trust the scriptures is the, the reason and the way that over a course of multiple thousands of years, from dozens and dozens of authors, that there's a remarkable coherence to the narrative, that there's a drive, there's a goal, that different authors have different flavors, but they're all shooting at the same target, and it all converges perfectly at Christ and makes much of him, and he's the center of the entire plot, that no other books written over thousands of years by dozens of authors pull that same thing off. 
And the fourth reason I think it's good is because of the carefulness and the process of the scribes in the first, second, and third century. And so this is probably the most academic scholastic piece of this. And so we have this event coming up called Scribes and Scripture, August 17th. It's a Saturday. Um, it's a good chunk of time, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. A couple of folks who I'm friends with who have one as a PhD from Cambridge, one as a PhD from somewhere less impressive than Cambridge. But they're... Um, they're New Testament, Old Testament scholars, and this whole scribe and scripture conference is all about why we can trust the text of scripture as it is, and why the transmission history of it is reliable witness to who the person of Jesus is. And so maybe it's for your sake, you have doubts, questions, wrestlings. Maybe it's for a neighbor's sake, especially like secular LDS folks who kind of told that the Bible is not really that trustworthy in a variety of ways. Maybe you even have like Muslim neighbors who've, who have a similar account or narrative. Uh, either for equipping yourself or for addressing your own doubts, you should come to this. It's 12 bucks. That's what we're charging because uh, that's what lunch costs. Uh, but if you kind of really want to be a light, I think in this cli- cultural climate, knowing why the Bible's worthy of trust is a great uh, place to start. So that's why I think liar, lunatic, legend, uh, I've, he's not a legend. <laughs> he's a real person. But Jesus here calls himself Lord. Liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. How does Jesus introduce himself? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, or if you've never read this before, you kind of read that sentence, and you're like, what kind of a sentence is that? All you English teachers are like, Jesus, come on. Before Abraham was, I am. That's not a sentence. Who speaks like that? But clearly the Jews got what he was saying because they pick up stones and try to kill him. So something that he's communicating is landing. What's landing? Well, here's the whole idea is Jesus is using a phrase, ego emi, I am. And he's pulling the heartfelt confession when God first gives Israel his name at Mount Sinai with Moses. He describes himself as the I am. Jesus claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. Exodus 3 says it like this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I'm the one who's unaffected. I'm uncreated. I, I'm, I'm the person who's non-derivative of someone else. I am what I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, he sent me to you. This is my name forever. Yahweh is his name and I am is how he describes himself. And Jesus speaks before the Jewish leaders and say, before Abraham was, I am. Let me connect these dots for you. Let me be very clear about this. The person who appeared to Moses before he had the Ten Commandments, me, Yahweh. This is why when we baptize people, we baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because the Son, the Father, and the Spirit share the name, and the name is Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, my name is I am, my name is Yahweh. Nice to meet you. And they have to try to kill him because that's blasphemy unless it's true, which it is. So if Jesus is Lord, then how do we have to deal with that? C.S. Lewis talked about it like this. He said, you must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a good moral teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a liar. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. 
Jesus is speaking here and he's speaking in a way kind of like you walk into a burn and walk into a movie theater, which you wouldn't, but two years ago, you might have walked into a movie theater and said, fire. People have to decide true or false. You can't just neutrally say, I think the guy yelling fire, he's a good moral speaker. <laughs> that doesn't work. They're either lying or they're telling the truth. And if they're lying, then we're good. Keep watching the movie. And if they're telling the truth, we need to get out of here. And when Jesus comes up and he says, I am, he's giving us the option. Liar, lunatic, legend, Lord. Pick one. Good moral teacher is not an option. And if you come to the realization that Jesus is Lord, he is who he says he is, then the only question is, what type of Lord is he? What type of Lord? Just one we have to submit to and get on with it. Not good news. Is it bad news that he's Lord or is it good news that he's Lord? A lot of times we tend to take our experience of our parents and project it on God most high. They're arbitrary, they're absent, they're judgy, they're disappointed, they abandon us. We tend to view Jesus as a Lord who's absentee, he's arbitrary, he's a killjoy, but that's not what he's like. You know, my son's in this great season right now where he, he doesn't know that I'm a sinner and a failure. So he just loves me a ton without real qualification. I don't know how long it's going to last. <laughs> Two weeks, three weeks. But if we go to places where there's like new people he doesn't know, he gets all bent out of shape and scream. He's super extroverted. You know, new people. He squeals, runs in circles, runs up and down, high fives people. But about every 30 seconds, he stops and points at me and goes, dad, dad. Like looking eye contact with these people. Like, that's my dad. Did you know that's my dad? Dad, dad. He's like, some of you are like, man, I remember when my kids used to love me that much. <laughs> you know? <laughs> now it's like, yeah, it's my dad. I told him to drop me off around the corner. Like, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm allowed to be here. I'm here with him. I'm not here with you. I'm here with him. He's great. And if we really get and understand the heart and character and faithfulness of our father in heaven, that's what we'll be like. That's my father. Do you know him? Have you met him? He's why I'm here. You should meet him. He's the Lord we don't need to be ashamed of. Not one we need to have drop us around the corner, but he's good and kind. And he reveals himself perfectly in the person of Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way that you sharpen us, the way you guide us, the way you give us tension. I pray that in this room that we would all really believe that you're Lord and a Lord worth following. I pray for folks in this room who don't know you yet, that you'd soften hearts, open ears, and help us see you for who you are. Amen.